Just a little love note to all of our loyal free cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to the show. This is an ad-free podcast. And we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five, and it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free cookie supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could, I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content. Like I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content, you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today, <laughs> today we are so excited because we have the amazing Leone Ross who wrote Poppy Show, who is the May pick for the Inky Phoenix. And Inky t- Phoenix is Catherine's book club. If you are a new listener to Free Cookies, please follow at the Inky Phoenix. Thank you very and there much. There we go. Little plug, little plug. <laughs> but today is all about magic. Poppy Show, which as you listen to the interview, is not the easiest novel to describe. And it makes sense because it is one of the more magical books that we have read in a long time. And magic is not something that you can hold or easily describe. You know, what? what's interesting about the discussing magic to me and this idea of describing it, uh, tangential, but I'll share anyway. I, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I read a book on NDEs, near-death experiences. And in it, anyone who had had a near-death experience was at a complete loss to explain what had happened in those moments afterward. Even to explain, you know, if someone, the idea had been that someone had passed or had been, you know, was dying or died and kind of crossed over and left their body. And the question on the table was, well, were you out of your body? What space were you holding if you weren't inside of a body? And no one, there was like, it's kind of like this, but kind of like that. And the, the author of this book was just saying that, in these worlds in which we have not had hundreds and hundreds of years to really work through a joint language that we can understand, people are left without actual words that describe something. And I think that 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 hit home to me because then when we don't have actual words, a lot of people don't take things as seriously. Sure. And the soul being probably one of the more magical yes. constructs out there is I think it's very difficult as being human to separate a physical meat suit encasement for your soul as if a soul is like this little like what is a soul is it like this little is it like a dandelion that like blows into the air and goes into another meat suit at some point look we're trying to use words that people understand for something that is magical but uh, but but the discussion of magic too just to bring it back from near-death experiences because you probably didn't see that coming (laughs) and you're like damn i was gonna say one thing and then she went with near-death experiences but the topic of why in let's look at American culture, 
if you say magic, a lot of people think, okay, Harry Potter, they think childish, they think young. Not everybody, but there is a kind of undercutting of its sophistication or seriousness. And the question of why that has happened is very, uh, is interesting to us. It's, it, I have had many experiences as someone who grew up with magic, who believes in magic, who writes about it, who tries to live this way. Um, There's this, for me, often this experience of people associating magic with lack of intellect or mm-hmm. um, uh, sophistication. Because it's... Because it's, maybe it's going back to this childlike mentality. And since when were children the only ones that were permitted to enjoy magic? I mean, we're, we're assuming that once you grow up, magic dies because then you're exposed to the reality of the world, which in many ways is true and very depressing if you think about it that way. But the concept in, in Poppy Show that's so great is every character in her book has this thing called a cores. And a cores is this magical ability that is assigned to each person that is completely unique to them completely unique to them. And it got me thinking, like, if we actually lived in a world where magic was ubiquitous and common and we did all have this thing where, you know, I could put my hand over food and season it to perfection or, you know, producer Lindsay could touch me. Producer Lindsay, I love that that's her first name. Producer Lindsay could reach out and touch me and be like, oh, you have a toothache and it's in your, in the back right one and this is what you need to take and this is what's going to take it away. You know, these abilities. Would that empower us to be better people or would it just become corrupt like everything else and then like we would try to use our magical ability to outweigh someone else's? Yeah. And and in this interview, Leone has this suggestion or belief that Western kind of capitalistic societies, and and I agree with this, have devalued magic to the level that we're talking about where it it almost holds, in the adult world, not just no cultural currency, but if you suggest that you believe it, that you seem to be anti-science, unsophisticated, Mm -hmm that you don't understand the way the world works, like you're living in a dream world. And that is Heads the, in the cloud. That is a very Western belief system that I can't help. I wish that I had already deconstructed it enough to see how it's tied up in pr- productivity and capitalism and all of that. But it seems to be all, all mired in that whole whirlpool. And it's deeply affected me as someone who's writing... Uh, by all means, it's a fantasy book. Like, it would be shelved under fantasy. Not sci-fi per se, but I wrote the book and when I talked to my literary agent, we decided to go young adult because it's fantasy, because it's about magic. So already, right off the bat, boom, magic. Oh, okay, this is for kids. This is for the younger audience. And after submitting it, it wasn't young adult enough. And I had to sit with it and understand and give myself permission to make the story exactly what I wanted to make it instead of trying to fit it into the box for the genre, for the readership that I think magic should be for. And as I've been going through these edits in this draft and I have this amazing friend and beta reader, hi Amy. Um, and I have familiars, there's witches in it and they have familiars, which are their little animal counterparts. And as I was writing the adult version, I'm like, I don't know if I can keep the familiars because an animal counterpart intuitively, it sounds like something from Harry Potter, right? It sounds like something that would, uh, like maybe after the book, they'll make stuffed animals about this animal. Um, and Amy very graciously reminded me adults want magic in their life too. Speaking of adults wanting magic, one of the things I think about all the time when we first started seeing each other was when we were out to dinner 
at this Brazilian <laughs> restaurant in New York City. This is, must have been the first six months. Yeah. And we were at a table for two and there was a candle in the middle and it wasn't... And we were sharing a bowl of pasta no, and, and it, it was, was the same one and we kissed. And it turned out we were animated. It was really <laughs> weird. Um, but there there was a, a little candle in the middle, but it wasn't lit. And you very seriously posited to me looking at it that you believe that either historically you would have had the power or you you could and should, if you focused long and hard enough, be able to look at that candle and ignite it. And I was like, do you believe that fundamentally, that that is something you can do? And you're like, yes, I believe it's inside of me, but I believe it's buried so deep that I will never be able to excavate it. And I think about that a lot when I see a candle now. And sometimes I will look at it. Again, you probably wouldn't be able to conjure this magic within like 90 seconds. But I, I often look at it and I try to convince myself that I fully believe and then I try to make it light. And I do this once a month, maybe, because of that conversation we had. And I'll look at the candle and I'll like ignite, ignite, <laughs> ignite, ignite. Well, I think magic is like anything else, right? It's it's a, a construct that we as Westerners have told belongs with children, but it's also like anything, it's an education and it's it's a practice. And like in yoga, you meditate and meditation doesn't come easily. And to to find what is actually existing on the other side of all this chaos in our mind is through the practice of meditation and repetitively like showing up on a regular basis. And in the same way that if you wanted to be a writer, you have to write every day or often. And it's something that trial and error and you learn. And I do think that there's so much within the deep recesses of our minds that we haven't accessed because we right off the bat say it's not real. It's not possible. And so we don't even bother going down the path of educating ourselves and trying to become good at it because we don't think it could be a thing. And so I think if we rewired our thinking into this magical way of like, sure, I could ignite that candle if I want to. Weird example, right? This is probably not the best example of magic, but I do think that it's something that you actually put the time and effort into. It's something that can be cultivated. Which is part of the reason why I read read these books, because they are magical. And that's my cultivation is absorbing it, talking to these people, reading it, and then hoping to find a way to put it into my own words that I share. Shall we bring on this uh, interview? Yes. Puppy show. Leonie Ross is a fiction writer and academic. She was born in England and grew up in Jamaica. Her first novel, All the Blood is Red, was longlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction, and her second novel, Orange Laughter, was chosen as a BBC Radio 4's Women Hour Watershed Fiction favorite. Say that five times fast. Her first short story collection, Come Let Us Sing Anyway, was nominated for the Edge Hill Short Story Prize and the Jalak Prize. Ross has taught creative writing in London for 20 years and worked as a journalist throughout the 90s. She lives in London, but intends to retire near water. And when you listen to our interview, you'll find out her secret power that has to do with water. And a little bit about Poppy Show. Poppy Show is written on the inside of the book, is a masterful delight, a playful love story, a portrait of community, a boldly sensual meditation on desire and addiction, and a critique of legacies of corruption and colonialism. Inspired by the author's Jamaican homeland, inflected with rhythms and textures of an amalgamation of languages, it is dazzling work of fiction. I could not agree more. Let's bring on Leonie. 
All right, we are joined with Leonie Ross. Leonie is coming from London, correct? England, you're in London. Yes. You're right, I am in London. And we are so excited to talk to you. I am calling your book Poppy Show because we are in America, but also known as This One Sky Day. And Leonie, this book, everyone's like, oh, explain this book to me. And I, I cannot... I cannot do it justice. I can't do it. It's just, it's like you have to read it. You have to experience it for yourself. So for listeners who have not read Poppy Show yet, a little elevator pitch, like how would you describe it for them? I'm glad you think that I'm any good at the elevator pitch. I've never I know, it's so mean to start with that. No one's ever done it quicker than like eight minutes. So just go for it. Yeah, I know. I always knew that if I was forced to try to sell this book in an elevator pitch, I would fail and that would just be the end of it. But but I'm going to give it a try. So something like, uh, you know that idea of the one that got away? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The idea of the one who got away, you know? The person who um, we really could have done with trying with, but maybe the timing was wrong. Maybe they were married to the wrong person, but, you know, they passed us by. But we occasionally think of them. And usually when I say that, particularly to women, but to everybody, there's a little smile. You know? <laughs> so this book is this book is about on one level. <laughs> uh, simply, it's a love story. Two people, and this doesn't really give anything away, two people who were for each other, the one that got away, have a chance to be together. But then it's not just that, of course. It all takes place on an island in which magic is a real thing. Um, it takes place uh, when very strange things are happening both to the environment and to people's bodies. So it's a uh, work of magic realism. Um, it's very Caribbean in, in many ways, and then not. Um, and, and I probably now confuse people even more than <laughs> I mean, I'm in. I'm in. Well, you're, me. You're, you're always good when you bring up the one that got away, because like you said, the little yes. smile that everyone has, that version of everyone whatever that, that story is. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, one thing that I've noticed just as Catherine and I have, have been talking to so many people about books is that when you even say the word magic as it relates to book and, and maybe this is a Harry Potter phenomenon but there there's there's some sort of correlation that adults have with magic that maybe it's not going to be for them in your opinion what is it if you if you believe that that um that idea that that is the case what is it behind this cultural idea that you think that we have that magic is somehow childish um I think we, those of us who believe that, I think we have a problem, you know, mm-hmm. to be told that we have to grow up, that magic is not a very serious matter, that magic can't act as a metaphor for serious political and social engagement is is all very suspect. Now, I would say this. I think there are many adults who have no problem with the idea of magic realism, because I suppose that's what this genre is. And by that, I mean, you know, the magic invades the realism and has an effect on it and therefore illuminates or kind of emphasizes the the, the, the social or, or political or personal dynamics that are going on. So so this, you know, this is a genre that with a long tradition, you know, it started in art. It certainly became part of, most people know it as part of Latin American literature, but also Caribbean literature. So the idea that, you know, strange things happen all the time, or that actually the ordinary is extraordinary, are actually really powerful adult ideas 
Um, I use magic to illuminate injustice, to talk about the ways that women have relationships with their bodies, um, to talk about the nature of love, to talk about the way that addiction works. All of this is the matter of, of adult concern, you know. So I think that perhaps people who have that that response need to give the genre a try again because social uh, magical realism has always been political and adult. Uh, That's not Leona, you're not speaking to me. my soul right now. I mean, as someone who writes about magic and I have been um, chastised throughout my life by certain people for thinking that it's childish. And even as I'm reworking this draft of a book that I originally wrote for a young adult because I had it in my head, oh, it's so magical, it should be for uh-huh. children. And then the mm-hmm. feedback was it wasn't young adult. Yeah. And I had to give myself permission to just... Yes, Go to, for do it. It. yes. to do it. Yes, and I was like, oh, there's... And if, no, if you were looking for a, yet another, you know, layer of encouragement, this is yes, it please. right now. In this second, darling, do it, yeah? <laughs> Thank because, you. Because this, this is also a cultural complexity. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to explain it well, but I'll give it a go. It's this as well. Because, all right, all the way through our human communities, this is not just a Caribbean Latin thing or a matter of people of color. It's just that I can speak about those communities best because I'm from those communities. This idea that mythology and strangeness is not constant and around us all the time is a Western affectation. Mm -hmm. And it has its own kind of cultural imperialism. You know what I mean? Its own kinds of dismissiveness. And I think we should be really careful with that because all the way through our, our human society, you know, adults have spoken to each other about meaning in this way. I'll give you an example. I was running, this is years ago now, but I was running a, a workshop on magic realism at the British Museum in, in this country, obviously. And I had a whole, you know, mixed group of, of students of different ages and backgrounds. And we were just talking about the magic in the real and the real in the magic And one of them told me a wonderful thing. He insists, he knows it's not rational, whatever rational means, but he insists that this was true. He said when he was a boy, for the first time ever, his uncles and his father took him hunting. He'd never been hunting before. And he was frightened. And he didn't want to tell them he was frightened. He was probably about 10. And I think they got rabbits or hares or something, and they came back to the house. And they left him in the kitchen momentarily. He said it felt like a long time, but maybe it was just minutes, with all of the blooded corpses of these rabbits on Mm. the table. And he said he was probably quite frightened and sickened, and they smelled, you know. Mm -hmm. And his... Uh, maybe his grandmother or his aunt or someone, but a woman, an elderly, uh, a woman who were older to him, came into the kitchen, skinned one of the rabbits, which also horrified him, and popped it in the pot and then went out again. And he said he watched as the hare lifted itself out of the pot, <clears throat> put its skin back on and went through the door. Oh, my God. Now, he knows that this didn't happen. <laughs> But he insists that he saw it happen. Now, of course, we could get all, you know, explainy and sciencey and say, of course, well, you know, the child was traumatized and that's why it saw the rabbit and blah, blah, blah. And, and of course, I'm not arguing that he actually saw the rabbit or the hare put its skin back on. <laughs> what I'm arguing for is a way of understanding the universe that includes strangeness. Yeah. For all of us, his was an Irish family, you know. So... Yeah, I think that we this has been a serious way of us understanding the way that the human community works for a long time. And if you're writing a book like that, darling, don't go no YA on it. YA is quite fine, but don't do it if that's not what it is. 
take a deep breath and just write the magic that you know to be important for an adult eye. Oh my goodness, you're you're my favorite cheerleader. Thank you for that. <laughs> I deeply appreciate that. Feel good apart from anything else. <laughs> I, I will work on my cores. My cores will be to fully. Yes, your core magic. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm going to jump all over the place because now that you shared that anecdote about the the rabbits. I was actually talking with Kate and our producer about a scene earlier on in Poppy's show where you talk about the man who raises his goats and Mm -hmm. he brings it to the market to slaughter. And I'm going to try to talk about this scene without crying. It, and Mm -hmm. I was telling Kate when I read it, I'm like, this is, there's this scene where a goat gets slaughtered and it's the most beautiful (laughs) scene I had read, which is, it seems counterintuitive when you talk about an animal getting slaughtered, but how he taught his goats to meditate. Meditate. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah. that was such a beautiful concept. And I was just wondering if that's something that you had ever actually heard of, or if that was just a beautiful nugget that came from your mind. Because it, it, as someone who just I, loves animals and magic, and we're vegetarian, and I just, I get very emotional when I read that scene. <laughs> and it was wildly impressive. I mean, I, I kind of, I, I worried about the vegetarians in that scene, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, oh, God. Um, but I think I think there's a way in which there's you know it's that that's a, co- a complex thing, perhaps even too wide ranging for us to talk about the you know how the artist begins to think about that which will hurt or concern a readership and how you mm-hmm. you know please yourself rather than anyone else and yet what your responsibilities are to a society and a community and so on. I think that's very complex. And I in the end I left that scene in. I'm glad you did. Because I, because I was proud of it. <laughs> I liked the way I'd written it. Um, it said something about the way that this community works. Yes. That, uh, you, know, that, you know, it's a community that needs to, to, to breed animals and to, to keep itself healthy to, to do that. So and it's part of its culture. But certainly this man who keeps these, these animals does not want to... to um, to hurt them, which is, I know, ridiculous. He's killing them. Yeah. But, you know, if he could teach them to meditate, why not? So you teach them to meditate. And yes, to answer the question, that's just out of my weird brain. I just thought that. <laughs> I love your brain. <laughs> if we're going to chill out the goat in any way, then yeah, sure. Teach it to meditate would be the way to do it. All right. I'm going to pull back for a second here to to the the broader view of Poppy Show in the the, the publishing landscape, because I, I, I read that a quote from you about publishing Poppy Show that said, I wasn't worried about whether, or writing Poppy Show, excuse me, I wasn't worried about whether anyone would like it or whether it would sell. All those things we become consumed about when we begin to publish. Mm. Now that it it has been published and you're in the process of doing publicity and talking about the book, were you able to achieve that? And how, if you were? You mean uh, able to, hold able on, to achieve n- not becoming consumed with pu- the publishing process? Huh. Um, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I can't remember particularly saying that. I'm not saying you're wrong. I just can't remember the context. Um, I probably was, what was probably closest to, to authenticity would be that I was trying not to get consumed. Yes, totally. Because of course it does you no favor, you know? Um, and I do think that in the end, of course I'm concerned about publishing and of course I'm concerned about selling only in the context of reality you know uh, capitalism and consumer culture means that we have to sell things in order to you know keep life and soul together and pay the mortgage and stuff so of course i want to sell but i think when you're on the page 
when you're being required to work out the narrative, when you're thinking about character, when you are considering whether themes work together. I suppose what I perhaps meant was that's when you can't afford to be thinking about the market or the selling or the publishing industry because then it just gets in the way. That's not appropriate. You have to write as as well as you can what you like. You have to write well. You know, you have to attend to your craft. You have to take responsibility for what you say. You know, you have to ask yourself about adverbs and verbs and metaphors. <laughs> those kinds of questions don't are just interrupted by concerns about money and capitalism. That comes later and you can't avoid it. But, you know, I think perhaps that's what I meant by it. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a quote about the writing process and not getting caught up in what might sell and what... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I don't, and I don't think you... I do think that's true. I don't think that you can... I don't think you can predict the market, you know? You'll just be maddened by it. I mean, I remember once someone saying to me, and I got, I flew into a temper tantrum, which makes me sound much more unpleasant than I actually am. <laughs> but a friend of mine, I think, suggested, this was many years ago, you know, why not just work out the thing that's selling and write that? Yeah. I said, how dare you? The disgusting. No, I don't. You know, I'm an artist. What do you mean, darling? You know, um, but I do feel that, you know, I don't think that we should be writing to the market. I mean, there are some people who are very good at that particularly in nonfiction, go for it. Sure. But there's something sure. unbearably cynical for me about that. Yeah. Write what you like. You know? And as it's important. It, it, the question about the publishing and getting caught up in that, it's very specific to the book world, but I think it has larger implications because even if some of our listeners aren't necessarily writers in their own way, so, yeah. so, so many of us are caught up in the response to what we do and rather than the process of doing, especially with how, how our world has gone with, with technology. So my follow-up to that is in this time after publishing, when you do find yourself, if you find yourself focusing on things that are outside of your control, mm. what do you, do you have any internal dialogue or, or do you, how, how do you pull back from that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I suppose this, Yes, of course, I'm looking at, I'm asking questions about sales and I'm looking at reviews and I'm, you know, uh, with all the love in the world, talking to guys like you, hoping that you'll help me sell it, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> totally. Right? But, but, but I tell you what's pleasurable. What's most pleasurable is the people who write to me and tell me that they cried. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's yeah. the thing. You know, that's the thing, right? Um, uh, there's nothing like that. Um, so that kind of keeps my eye on it. Also, at some point, I'm going to have to come up with another idea for another novel. <laughs> this one took a very long time to write. It took 15 years and I have no intention of doing that again. So I think also what perhaps keeps you, keeps me uh, clear is I have to write another one. Oh, crap. What am I going to write about? Yeah. You know, so I yeah. can't be, I can't sit down and be completely taken with questions of success or failure when the the blank page awaits me but also the fun of that as well you know? mm -hmm. like I think how much I think the thing I've worked out for myself is that I have to have fun doing this thing yeah that comes off the page for sure process. yeah I have to have fun with it you know I may as well yeah, we we spoke with Emily St. John Mandel, who wrote Station Eleven, and she articulated what I think is very true when she said the only anecdote to publishing is writing. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah. that's kind of what the, the, what she has for herself is during the process of her book coming out, she's making sure that she's already in the creative process so that you're so enthused about what you're doing now that you're less concerned about the response to what you have done and you just let it be, which I think is a very concise way of saying that. I think that's a very good approach. I mean, certainly it's something that my agent suggested to me, in fact, recently, a couple of months ago, she said, if this, if the publicity begins to take over and you feel overwhelmed, I think you need to think about the next thing. And while I think she's right, I'm not there yet. Mm-hmm. It's taken a long time to get Poppy Show out of me. Yeah. And also yeah. I, I, I've, it, there's a flip side of way of looking at this. I've been paying attention to the publishing process also to enjoy it. I've never been pushed this hard. I've never been this kind of explicitly international. I've never had two publishing houses that are big, also doing big things behind me. I've never been pushed so much or reviewed so widely. And so actually, um, good thing my friends keep pointing out is you deserve to sit down in that. Yes. And that is about success or failure. Yes, it is. But 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 I think they're right. I deserve to sit down and let myself feel, wow, that's a thing that's happening, you know, mm-hmm. because it's going to go. So if I'm not present in it. That's so true. Yeah. You know, we, we talk a lot about the concept of a moving goalpost when it comes to meeting goals and and not being able to actually sit in that celebration, but you know, the goalpost is already advanced and what is the next achievement? And we were talking with Rebecca Sarali recently who wrote in five years and she was saying, you know, she's in this very successful place with her book and that she is finally allowing herself to be present for her success. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we could all take a page out of that book and, yeah. and lean into a bit more instead of the constant quest for what it is that will feed us next. And it takes concentration, no? It takes some real concentration yes. because of that kind of constant, you know, and not everybody. We shouldn't assume that everybody feels this way, but enough of us feel concerned by the next thing to be consumed by not be in the moment. And certainly um, my first two novels, which I published in the 90s, so a long time ago, um, I, I wasn't present at either of those book launches. You know, you have the launch event, you know, people are around you and congratulating you, people you love are holding you. I wasn't conscious. I wasn't present. I was too frightened. And then I, uh, about three years ago, published a collection of short stories and called Come Let Us Sing Anyway. And that kind of pushed me back into publishing again after a long period of absence. And I promised myself this time I will be conscious at that launch event. And it was it was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I stood there. I allowed myself to be present as people who loved me embraced me. I allowed myself to be present, you know, putting my fingers over, you know, copy after copy of this collection of short stories. I allowed myself to be present when I was reading, when people say it. It was so wonderful, you know. Um, and I promised myself I'd do it again this time. But it takes contribution. <laughs> time I've had to concentrate again I nearly kind of went blank and freaked out at this now the, at the you know at the launch for puppy show um but I didn't I I managed to connect in the moment again so it's this very uh-huh. can do I think we do it partially out of anxiety yeah and partially out of troll freakiness <laughs> or we feel like we're performing you know we're doing the thing darling we're being the writer whatever it is that we feel that we're doing but I thought this is a room and what was lovely is that, of course this time the launch was virtual because of course pandemic mm-hmm. and but what the advantage that was is that actually we filled a room for, a virtual room full of people from all over the world who I knew and loved mm. so that 
that hadn't happened in launches before. And I was so glad I was present because there was a point at which my, I think my agent said, let us all kind of, you know, now raise a glass to, to Leone at the end and everybody unmuted. And there were these voices calling to me from all over the world mm. saying, love you. We're so proud of you and laughing. And I could hear voices from, you know, when I was in my 20s, when I was a child, because, of course, lots of people had turned up. Oh, it was the most amazing thing. So anyway, I've gone off on a tangent, but I do. No, we like it. It's a beautiful moment of being present in that very second as I heard my entire life echoed back at me in love. It was gorgeous. Well, I I can't say I'm surprised because I have to sing your praises as a writer. There's... you are incredibly talented. And one of the things that struck me so much on Poppy Show is just how sensual this book is and what a fantastic grip you have on explaining. Uh, to me, sex is a character in your book, like an actual character. And we see it passionate, purposeful. You know, there's the prostitution empowered and powerless, the regretted sex. And and God, we have to get to pom-poms. We have to talk about pom-poms. But- <laughs> But but I will digress. Before we get there, I wanted to share one of my favorite graphs from your book that I feel like summarizes just this beautiful, it's so difficult to write about sex. And I just wanted more from you. And and I'm your new forever fan. But this part in the book you write about, let's see, where should I start? It wasn't her face or thighs. He'd never been a man to compartmentalize a body. All parts of women seem to have something to do with the rest, like a recipe. Perhaps it was her unrelenting ease. She insisted he learn fast what pleased her. No hiding in the dark or innocence. Pay attention, she said. Attention is everything in life. Her body was not perfect. She expected him to like it as it was. She was bleeding the first time and she shrugged when he discovered it. What of it? I'm female. I mean... (laughs) Is that why is that so good for you? Oh, it's so good for me because you just, as a woman, and this is something Kate and I talk about all the time, is just women performing for men, women living in a man's world, and you just wrote these women as women, like unapologetic lions, and and it was this is I just this is what I love to read. And it's so often, especially when it comes to sex and literature, that it's a woman performing for a man when it comes to sex. And obviously, as two queer women, I love this too, but it just, there was so much beautiful, accept me as I am, and I'm not here for societal norms, I am here for myself. And I think a lot Mm. of people will take that. Mm. I mean, I think that that character, her name is Desiree, and I think there's a particularly, it would be disingenuous for me not to point out that there's a you know there's another level of complexity that sits there because even though Desiree teaches a young Xavier Xavier is our male protagonist a young, he, she teaches a young Xavier how to please her and 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 takes control of the sexual space there's also another layer which actually is while Xavier's not a child when they are lovers he is a young adult and she's older than him and in a position of power over him and so one of the things I do like doing is kind of flipping the script and mm-hmm. and, and at um so we have a woman who's in control and of course it's you know power absolute power control you know um you know um when we have absolute power, we're in a position to use that in, in in the negative. And she does because she's, while she might be quite sure of herself sexually, she's very unsure of herself in other ways. And so she's very sexually manipulative. 
and manipulates him and other students who she has care for. So I, I, I don't think, I think for me, particularly sexuality has so many different layers and mm-hmm. so many different opportunities for us to, us to talk about the ways that human beings have relationships and the way that we use pleasure and power that there's, there's, there's very rarely one layer for me when I do a sex scene or I address sexuality. There's always something else there for you to hopefully do my job to navigate, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I have to, I don't think I'm giving anything away to the readers. And if I am, I apologize. But to, to bring it back to the pom-pom. <laughs> and if anyone's confused by the term pom-pom, we're talking about vaginas. Um, obviously. Vulvas, literally vulvas. Literally vulvas. Let me, let me do, let me do a, a tiny, let me interrupt you and do a, a tiny pronunciation thing. Yes, so yes. Now, welcome to Jamaican pronunciation. Oh, yes, please. So rather than pom, we're going pum. So pum, pum. Boom, boom. Boom. Oh, that's even better. Not like cheerleading pom-poms, but poom poom. No, so not pom-poms, not pom-poms, <laughs> but poom. So it's short. Not poom, but poom. Poom, poom, poom. Pum 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 pum. Deceit there, you got that. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. I'm feeling good. Let's don't say it again because we'll mess it up. It's got a little tingle. It's working. (laughs) But when I was reading that, I I remember I was in bed. I was reading the net galley, and when that first happened, when when the vulva fell out, I was like, oh, it's metaphorical. And a couple pages into it, I was like, oh, my God, it legitimately what? fell off of she her body. now. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I, I leaned over to Kate and, you know, she wasn't reading it at the time. She has no idea what I'm talking about. I'm like, I can't even explain what's happening in this book right now. It's so crazy. <laughs> but what an amazing ride. It's just I, I love your creativity. And we also read that you hate it when people ask you where your ideas come from. So, so we're, we're not, not going to do yet. that. We've got other ones. <laughs> but we are here for it. We are absolutely here for all these amazing ideas. Um, so I, I seem to be more of like the the, the process person. The, the, I like process. Um, but I and I'm reading things. So maybe I have the whole story wrong. But it from what I read, it you know, you went back after writing two novels in the 90s and you wanted to get back to just the freedom of writing as you did as a child. And somewhere I read or I heard that you had something like almost half a million words that you had written yeah. before starting to maybe, I don't know if it was sculpted down. Can you tell us a little bit about if it was a hundred thousand words, how you got to where you ended up? I mean, certainly. Okay. So that, I mean, there's no question that this book would not be the way it was if I actually hadn't been having a hard time with writing across the board. Mm-hmm. So again, the short version is that I, published two novels and they were okay. You know, I got mixed, sometimes good reviews. You know, I published in the States as well as in the UK. You know, it wasn't bad as a beginning, but I was, I was really young. I was like in my mid twenties. I knew nothing about the industry and I kind of thought, oh, someone would just pay me some money for a book and then I would write another book and then I would be a writer, right? No. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, I, I think at the time I felt like I'd done something wrong. I felt like if I'd written better books, maybe I would be able to make a living out of them. And I didn't have very good representation as well. And so no one was kind of helping me out and giving me context and going, actually, you did really well. Come on, let's see if we can find you some funding to write the next one. So I, in that way that women often do, I decided it was all my fault. And so, of course, mm-hmm. I promptly got blocked and stuck and couldn't write another word. And that's how this mountain of words came out, because what I did know as a result of teaching 
because uh, I taught creative writing for many, many years um, and had extremely excellent colleagues. A colleague of mine, a good friend of mine, a wonderful writer called Louise Tondor, who is just an exceptional teacher as well as a writer, looked at me and said, right, you're going to have to start free writing, which for people who don't know is just writing without stopping, without judging, letting anything that's in your brain come to the page. She's like, because you have to start writing. You can't, you have to stop thinking about writing and actually begin to write. And she was correct. But what I did for a very long time then is I didn't attempt to write a story or come up with a plot or come up with characters. I just wrote stuff on a piece of paper. And as you say, did try to go back to being a kind of child self. So I, I did very, very specific things with my body, remembering what it was to be a kid who liked writing. So I went to the park and I lay down on the grass on my tummy with like an exercise book and a pen and scribbled. And like, you know, waggled my legs in the air and sang to myself, right? Mm-hmm. And I was doing it deliberately to try to get back to a time in my life when I wasn't concerned with the quality of the sentence. I didn't care about whether anyone would give me an advance. I didn't even care about what a reader thought about it. I was just pouring all of this wonderful imagination onto the page. As a result of that, over a period of years, yes, I developed. I'm never really going to know how many words, but I certainly know we're into the 500,000, 600,000 mark. Hmm. Easily, easily. Just mountains of words, some of which were lists of crap, you know, nothing. And then at some point, I was like, you have to stop. (laughs) 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 And actually see if there's a narrative here. So now you have to actually use all of those things that you know in terms of craft to ask yourself, where's the story? Where are the limits? You know, Um, how are you going to begin to make something out of this? Because actually you could write and write and write forever. But that's not the same thing as actually getting a novel ready for, you know, public consumption. And... In the novel, so uh, your main character, Xavier, who everyone in Poppy Show has this thing called a Coors. Am I, am I saying that correctly? Yep, yep, Coors. C-O-R-S. So, a magic ability, a gift that is unique to each individual. And Xavier has the ability to uh, season food perfectly with his hands and to, to know what the, the perfect meal and at that one moment in their life that they will be, that he will make for them. It's, it's so lovely. And all these different cores that you read about, which makes me wonder, what would your cores be? Mm. Um, I mean, I'm kind of boring here. I'd like that my cores was writing a book that could make you cry. Then if that somehow works. But we need sometimes. a cores that you don't already have. Yeah, you, you really <laughs> slayed that one. <laughs> you already have that. Okay, so you want me, so you actually want me to go with a cores that I might quite like if I was in Poppy Show rather yeah. than, than actually what I think I have. Okay. Um, hmm. Let's see. I think I probably would want something like the ability to walk underwater. I oh. think that would to breathe in, in water because I'm such an aquatic little beast. And I love the water. And it's one of the few places my body feels kind of very strong and powerful and able and wonderful. Um, I love swimming. 
so yeah, I think I'd want that. I'd want to be able to, because can you imagine being able to go into the deep of the ocean? Oh, oh and see uh, everything uh, that no one even knows exists oh, there. But also getting down into the deep. That's scary. Like, and, oh, yeah, I would want that. Definitely. I would also want a protective bubble suit. Oh man, the things that are down there. I just, whatever it took to change my body, to be able to access the depth of the ocean, I want that. And if you could sit down with Xavier, what meal, what perfect meal would he cook you? Um, Xavier and I have had this conversation. (laughs) Xavier actually, and again, this is a kind of emotional moment. Xavier came to talk to me when... He had because my my characters kind of talk to me, right? They chatter on to me. But Xavier was a difficult one. He wouldn't talk to me for a long time. And for the entire time that I was writing the book, I kept seeing Xavier's not full face. He would never turn around and face me. I always saw him kind of three quarter face or saw his profile. And after the book was published, I was actually having dental surgery. (laughs) And I was, you know, meditating and trying to be calm through the the, the thing and so on and kind of visualizing. And suddenly there was Xavier. And I know this makes me sound crazy, but it was like having a hallucination of Xavier, like more intense than I'd ever seen him. And we were sitting on a beach together Mm. and he turned around and showed me his whole face. Mm. He's so beautiful, right? I was like, how are you doing? You okay? He's like, fine. Um, And he's like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm a little freaked out. (laughs) New York Times just said nice things. I'm a little freaked out. He's like, yeah, I know. I heard about that. He's like, everything is going to be cool. I'm like, okay, fine. And then we were just chatting. We're sitting there like on the edge of a very beautiful sea in Poppy Show with our feet in the water. And I said, you know, I just realized you never cooked for me. And I know this sounds corny, but the man just looked at me and laughed and said, no, you fed me. Mm. You fed me. So I don't know. I don't think he'd do anything more than give me a glass of water and tell me to breathe. Wow, my my wife is crying now. (laughs) That is your superpower. (laughs) Um, So this is is a decent segue because we were talking about food or, or Xavier's superpower of being able to make the perfect meal. And since this podcast is called Free Cookies, we do... About the free cookies. Well, the the name comes from my best. I think it comes from this is my origin story, and it's like you know you got to fight for the origin story, like Twitter fights for its origin story. Um, so my best friend, when I first met her, she had come onto the bus. I played basketball, and she had uh, cookies and. I didn't know her, but I was like, are you going to share those cookies? And so I, she would always bring cookies to all of our basketball games and. So she, the first CD she ever made me back when we made uh, mix CDs was called Free mm-hmm. Cookies. And so oh. I always thought of that as a good name. And the idea of the podcast is that cookies are, the cookies in the podcast are like ideas. And if people listen to it, they just get to think different thoughts. So yeah. that's, that's yeah. the origin of the name. But we also get, a, we get literal too. But yes, okay. we get literal as in. The actual cookies. Yes. yes. So we have to ask you, what is your favorite cookie? At the moment, it's Florentines. Do you know Florentines? No. Kind of like the very thin cookie, which is, um, it's like a combination of fruit and, um, and caramel. Um, and, but, but they're kind of not baked. They're this weird no-baked cookie. Um, and so they kind of stick together because they're, 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 because they've got the caramel in them. And then you dip them in chocolate on top of that. And they're really gorgeous. Is it like um like a st- Struppenwaffel kind of like the little 
<laughs> I worry that we could have thought bigger <laughs> and we got a little bit stuck. You got to start somewhere, baby. Free oh. Cookies is produced by Lindsay Collins of FMB Radio, also known as Producer Lindsay. Producer Lindsay. She likes to go by her her musical name, Producer Lindsay. Her honorific. <laughs> you can find us on the gram at Free Cookies Podcast or Catherine's Book Club. The Inky Phoenix Poppy Show is May's pick for the Inky Phoenix, which is in coordination with our local bookstore, Blue Bicycle. And you heard it here first, the June pick for the Inky Phoenix. Don't tell him, don't tell him, don't tell him, don't tell him, don't tell him. You ain't got to tell him, don't tell him, don't tell him. I'm going to cut her off now. <laughs> It is your DJ that you just heard going at it. That was producer Lindsay who did that. Kate Fagan's All the Colors came out. Who? That's right. What? That's right, you little sneaker witch. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Puggle Pied Piper. We should probably do you think your Pied Piper or that I could use my magic and put a pair of kicks under your Pied Piper? Well, I'm just saying that I was going to go way smaller than a Pied Piper of Puggles. I was just, my cores was going to be able to like touch Ashi and have her be like, I love it when my mama touches me. I want to snuggle her. And I would have been satisfied with that. But then I was like, no, go big. All Puggles. (laughs) Wow. You really, really, the scope just widened so broadly. This is actually my favorite part of the show right here. Every week's show, this is my favorite part because it's, it's, there's no we more, let go of our sanity. Yes. There's no more expectations. There's all these expectations at the beginning of the show. It's like, you got to introduce it. You got to do the thing. You got to tee it up. You got to make sure that you bring the person on. You got to do the bio, right? Expectations, expectations. Now I'm like, it's basically just Caroline Shea listening and <laughs> what's up, Caroline and maybe my mom. And so it's time to just free flow this thing. And it's worth it for them to text us every week being like, I love the end of the show. <laughs> they know that the end of the show is where the gems are. And uh, maybe if you somehow got sucked into these last night, 90 seconds, you're starting to realize that you want to start listening to these shows in reverse. Do because you want to be on the inside? Do you want to be part of the VIP free cookies insider crazy club? If, if it, this is, this is the, this is where we're going to find out how many people actually stay to the end of the show. The next person to leave a review on Apple podcasts, Apple, um, r- rate and review the show that we do all the time. If they mention that the end of the show is their favorite, they will get an extra special I shout out. I will send you a puggle. I will send you I can't think of anything. Let's okay. just take wrap it up. <laughs>